lights over my Look over here Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore, and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. I'm the host for this episode. My name is Paige. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Shanae Jonas, a Jamaican criminology researcher on crime in Jamaica. Shanae is a graduate of the University of the West Indies. She holds a bachelor's degree in international relations and criminology. Her work in Jamaica is focused specifically on youth violence and organized crime. She has contributed meaningful research in correctional facilities in Jamaica and the composition of special reports specific to human trafficking, arms, and drug trafficking in the region. Her overarching goal is to amplify and contribute to criminal justice policy, centering the need for crime prevention and highlighting the existence of the victim-offender binary and proneness to violence in an intergenerational context in Jamaica. Welcome, Shanae. Hi, thank you. You start by discussing the seriousness of the crime problem in Jamaica related to other countries of similar stature in the region. Um, okay, well, everybody would have seen the inside crimes like 2019 homicide run up. Um, I remember it was making waves on social media for some time, um, like week before last week, I think. But I know based on their study, Jamaica has a 47 point um, for, um, per 100,000 homicidal rate. Um, we have notably higher rates of violent crime in comparison to our neighboring countries, especially for um, homicide based um, on the findings of the report. Uh, and of course, the rates may be even higher since there's issues of underreporting. The crime situation um, has an adverse impact on the country's social, economic, and human development. So this is something that everybody should be concerned about. Um, it literally affects us all. Professor um, Harriet's work, which, you know, I big up Professor Harriet. He's, he's literally my mentor. He's somebody that I look up to. I follow his work. Um, he he wrote a book on organized crime and politics in Jamaica, Breaking the Nexus, and it was published, I think, in 2008, but it would have offered some insight into the connection between violence and politics, the etiology of organized crime in Jamaica, and the fact that it goes beyond just utilizing um, street gangs to intimidate voters, but rather the existence of a stronger um, partnership between the political parties and criminal gangs. And this would have contributed to the culture of violence that we currently are grappling with in this country. Criminals have evolved from just ordinary urban gangs um, who came from harsh community conditions, uh, were marginalized and considered victims of social dislocation and strain. And over time, our politics demanded or 
um, created a demand for violence and um, these newly formed gangs supplied it. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us are exposed to information regarding the role that politics played in in the construction and creation of garrison constituencies, you know, using public funds for um, social housing or quote-unquote social housing. And the construction of the these communities on the basis of party affiliation. Um, I know lest we forget, podcast would have released an episode on the Tivoli Garden Persian. Yes. Yeah, I would have touched on the creation of the garrison constituencies in Jamaica. Um, it goes in depth, like from Bakawal to the you know the tearing down of Bakawal. So like if you're interested um, in that extensive breakdown, you can definitely visit that episode. Please, guys, do check out that episode. Definitely. It was really, really good. It was really good. I think I listened to it about twice, like, or three times. But yeah, we, um, Jamaica has vulnerabilities. Our political history is something that I consider a vulnerability. Um, our vulnerabilities could also include our justice system, you know, because there's a high level of distrust in our justice system. And I mean, it's highly um, likely or highly unlikely that, you know, there was ever a period where Jamaicans had a high level of confidence in the system, given our colonial history. But people don't believe in its inf- effectiveness at all, and they prefer to go an alternative route or to just, you know, leave it alone. Um, another vulnerability um, uh, is our socioeconomic problems that would have contributed to um, our high rates of unemployment and low levels of unemployability um, and lack of access to quality education. Um, Vulnerability could mean our porous um, um, borders. I mean, organized crime consists of a myriad of illegal activities, money laundering, enterprise crime, like drug drug trafficking, construction, rackets, um, corruption, drug and gun trafficking, um, which by the way, are do- dominated by gangs and they would have provided the main impetus for the development of organized crime in Jamaica. Um, the latest figure I recall seeing regarding the number of gangs operating in Jamaica in this country is about 323 and 83% were cas- classified as first generation gangs. And this is coming from a figure of 120 in like 2012. Um, for, for, for those who don't know what first generation get first generation gangs are, they're like loosely organized gang gangs. So like groups that you know sometimes operate um, as street corner gangs. Um, uh, according to Chang, like these gangs usually engage in criminal activities like extortion. But I think it goes beyond that. But the the um, remaining um, 17% um, of the criminal organizations are mostly classified as second-generation gangs. Um, mm-hmm. A report in 2020 on the um, criminal gangs in Jamaica, and I think it's meaning, meaningful work, it's accessible work, and you know, if you're interested in seeing those figures, you can. I'll, I'll encourage everybody to to definitely visit their page and peruse it. I really am glad that you brought up the difference between a first generation and a second generation gang. And I think it's really interesting that so many of these have popped up of late. Like these are relatively new issues that we're seeing. 
um, well, not new issues, but new gangs that we're seeing. So from the numbers that you've seen in your research, can you speak to the effectiveness of the current GOJ policies in Jamaica to combat crime, um, for example, states of emergencies and the, the special zones of operation? Yeah, this is um, this is a very touchy topic um, because it's so fresh, like everybody's discussing it in the media and we're all concerned about it. You know, we're seeing people tweet about whether they're for or against um, the state of emergencies and so so. Um, but I think, you know, every, the government has spent a lot of money um, mobilizing these groups. I think about 230 something million to sustain um, SOEs in Jamaica, factoring like money spent on food and water, portable toilets, um, paying personnel. Um, a state of emergency, you know, as the word suggests, should be um, a period of emergency, of public emergency. It grants security forces immunity. It suspends the rights of citizens um, and grants mass arrests. I personally don't think it's useful, um, or even if it, it, it can work at some period, I think it should be coupled with another form of crime prevention, but I'll get to that later. Um, you know, the longer we extend it, the more it will lose its effectiveness and the usefulness. Um, criminals adapt to their environment and they will study the movements of the forest and set up eyes and ears everywhere to protect their criminal establishments and their activities. And they know where the security um, um, or the checkpoints are located. They know how many officers are stationed there. They can evade them. And I think if they wanted to, and if they want to, they can do it. And they have done it. Criminals have actually operated within these areas that are under state of emergency in close proximity to the checkpoints. Um, I've heard of shootings and crimes happening just like meters away from the checkpoints. This this state, you know, disciplinary method, you know, and I know the government is saying it's it's working and, and citizens in the communities are, are safer with the checkpoints in place, um, but I have some issues with the infringement on the rights of um, the citizens, some of which are um, juveniles, not just the citizens, but the offenders that are detained, most of which are juveniles, um, detained for extend, an extensive um, period of time. I read an article recently that indicated, and this was just like a late last week it was released, um, that indicated that out of like the 582 persons who were detained under the first ZOSO, only one person was charged with an offense, one degadega person. And 40 of those um, were, 40 of the 582 persons were children. Um, there are no records like indicating the reasoning behind why they were detained and if they were charged. Well, I'm seeing the the article mentioned that they weren't charged, definitely. Um, but yeah, we have these special squads. We have our zoo, so we have our SOE and our community invasions, our arbitrary um, home searches, and still our crime rate is rising. So what what what's the issue? Like. It, it, is I'm the only person I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who is like concerned about this. The violent removal of 
the leaders um, of gangs and criminal groups can also result in increased violence. So our gang issue is um, layered in territorial-based criminal groups. So majority of the time, they're replaced by new dons because we have a cycle of criminality. And I'm not saying that the force shouldn't sought after um, criminal groups and intercept their activities, but we have to do this while addressing the crime prevention methods as well. Um, so like mass arrest um, uh, is usually utilized to obviously pacify gangs and weaken their network. But if we don't have a system in place to investigate their crimes and to charge them, um, and try them and convict them, then I really don't see the point. It doesn't seem as though we're taking into consideration the level of abuse and inhumane treatment, treatments that offenders who, by the way, have not yet, yet been charged with a crime are exposed to while in state lockups. And I think, I personally think we can disrupt criminal networks while still recognizing that offenders have basic human rights. Um, there are also issues in terms of like who um, these laws or crime control methods target poor people. Poor people are the ones that are like poor people. Poor people are are considered lawless and not entitled to protection by the law. So anyway, spin it. They're at a disadvantage. Our forces have been like accused of of disregarding their rights as citizens, ignoring their problems and applying excessive force when they come in contact with them. Alienation, um, this alienation from um, the state um, forces, you know, uh, them people in poor communities to, to create a shared feeling of defensiveness and protection from possible threats. And the, these threats could mean anything, like they could be the government, they could be the police, politicians, or even like neighboring or rival communities. The reality is that Jamaicans have issues trusting the police, and it's a major issue um, um, because people refrain from offering information to the police or reporting crimes because they're afraid that the police officers have connections with criminal forces. So, mm-hmm. All right. Um, no, thank you so much for bringing up that point. I think, um, like many other people, I was really concerned when I saw the number of people that were detained and then that only a single person was charged. I think there's some serious issues there as it relates to human rights. And I'm I'm really glad that you brought up poverty because that leads into my next question. Can you talk more in depth about the relationship between crime and poverty in Jamaica? Yeah, um, crime is definitely a byproduct of uh, the socio um, or socioeconomic um, deprivation. People living in poverty are constantly neglected and socially excluded in this country. You know, they experience um, limited water supply, uh, high levels of unemployment, limited access to electricity, poor health and nutrition, lack of access to education, substandard living conditions. Like I could go on for days, but the links between um, <clears throat> crime and violence um, and poverty operates on a continuum. So crime and violence has an impact 
on the development and growth. Um, and this influences the increasing levels of po poverty and inequality. And inequality, um, social and economic deprivation, social exclusion contribute to high levels of crime and violence. So it's a never ending cycle and poor communities experience uh, a level of um, stigma of criminality or potential criminality and victimization. Um, there's a, there's a uh, there's some work that the Colin Webster and Sarah Kingston from Leeds Metropolitan University, they did like, I, I can't remember the year, but it was on crime and poverty and it kind of amplified, you know, and explained the connection between the two. Um, there is definitely like a relationship between socioeconomic status and offending, particularly in youth. So in Jamaica, most victims of homicide are male, young, uneducated and poor. It's also important to emphasize that there is a greater chance of being victimized because you're poor. Um, and there's an overlap between people who commit crimes and people who are um, crime victims. And this overlap is stronger for people who live in poor and vulnerable communities. The children who grow up in poor living conditions are susceptible to victimization. They experience mm -hmm. um, family violence, exposure to community violence, gang violence, parental neglect, lack of parental attachment, um, you know, who never go for them grandmother or them auntie, a lot of like moving up and down, a lack of proper education, child maltreatment, sexual and physical abuse, you know, and like, the poor, poor family um, functioning and emotional stress can occur in cases of economic disadvantaged families because there are limited resources and opportunities available to them. Um, their yeah. children in, yeah, their children in Jamaica um, who have not set foot in the educational system, like seven, eight year olds, I kid you not. So they, they um, and especially now with COVID, they still lack access to education and online classes. Children are constantly absent from school they're not being assessed properly or treated adequately. And um, whether we want to admit it or not, this leads to a myriad of social issues and it can lead to juvenile delinquency and eventually criminal pathways. Um, access to, 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 to proper education also doesn't just mean enrollment in schools or, or access to the, going to the physical bu building every day, but access to social success through proper education. Some schools are so poor and they lack resources and they just might be dead ends for some for, for some children. Um, Prof Harriet did a survey of two Kingston um, inner city communities a couple of years ago, like not couple, a, a long time ago. It was a good, good while ago, but it included some measurement of their their attitudes to education. And he explained that he understood that positive attitude towards education um, and a willingness to invest in it may be um, taken as indicators that the personal advancement of self and and um, um, children is possible um, and basic education is, is valuable. So marginalized children from volatile or vulnerable communities who feel like they can't access education or attain 
a particular standard of educational effort and believe that preparation for a conventional career is pointless will be at risk of offending the pathways the pathways to to um opportunities our opportunity must be you know made clear and the communities must be attractive enough to retain people who have you know taken these legitimate pathways so mm-hmm. um so so there definitely is a relationship between education and crime and access to to as i said access to just schooling is not enough to reduce criminality but access to educational achievement which will allow for youth to attain goals and, and, and attain societal goals that we expect of them and strengthen their conventional attachments and reduce criminality. You were no, saying something, yeah. Paige? Yeah, I just... Um, damn, I lost my train of thought. Give me one second, give me one second, give me one second. No, yeah, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad that you um, listed all the things that would drive somebody to committing crimes because i think too many people just think that oh somebody just wake up one day and decide yeah i want to rob somebody yeah and or they wake up one day and they're like you know what i want to be today i want to be a gunman like nobody (laughs) says that nobody does that literally there's so Mm -hmm. many things that drive people to mm-hmm. that and I'm glad that you brought up access because it's not just about having services available right like Heart Academy all these other services are there but do these people have access do they feel yes. comfortable enough to walk into these places and feel like they can participate in these things mm-hmm. that are available yeah yeah that that's literally it and I've, I've heard people people list all the other reasons why crime exists yeah man them are workless and I'm just hungry for money, and if they this that, it's just, it's not, it's not that, it, that doesn't make any sense at all, like, as you said, people don't just get up and, I'm gonna do this today, you know, um, and, and mean, the educational profile of, of the typical inmate in Jamaican prisons is that they had some exposure to secondary level education at a non-traditional high school, might have dropped out of high school before grade 11 without achieving CAT subjects or they made it to grade 11, um, sat the subject and performed um, poorly. So the, the non-traditional um, um, schools representation in our prison population is not coincidental. I don't think it's coincidental. First, mm-hmm. to, to even attempt to like address our poverty levels, we're going to have to ensure that our educational system is equipped and I mean, this is very personal to me because I attended both a non-traditional and traditional high school in Jamaica. And I could tell the difference in the quality of education being offered to me, the environment, it had a stark difference. And I say it all the time, the worst thing we could have done in this country is to encourage this traditional versus non-traditional schooling system. It fosters a high level um, or really high levels of inequalities. and. There's just no level playing field. You know, it's not just easy as going to school and achieving, like go to school, get an education and achieving this. If there are discrepancies in terms of the quality of education that you're getting based on the location, the community and the school and the ranking, you know. Um, but one of the theories that criminologists draw on to explain the lower middle classes engagement in crime is a strain theory. 
and and I know for some people they think it's exhausted, but um, some listeners may just now be hearing about this this theory. Um, people may engage in crime to reduce or escape from from strain from the strain that they're experiencing. So, mm-hmm. um, failure to achieve normal life goals like money and status can lead to criminality, and that's really what the the theory. Um, 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 expresses the society places a lot of expect- expectations on people and we're expected to get an education, get a job, buy a car, house, etc. But the legitimate means of achieving these goals are not equally available to everyone. So people who live in lower um, um, social classes don't have equal opportunities in their reach to attain the success that they're expected to, to attain. And so they will eventually turn to illegitimate means to achieve their version of success, um, which by the way can be monetary success or power and respect from their counterparts or rivals. And power is an intangible asset for people who engage in organized crime in these communities, but it is very, it is very important. Um, the, the lack of you know social mobility um, available to to poor and working class youth is is what makes um, them vulnerable to gang recruitment. Majority of the time, the young people recruited into gangs have very few family attachments or um, interest in pursuing legi- the le- legitimate um, route for attaining goals that I would have mentioned earlier. Um, and generally, people who grow up in poor communities are vulnerable and disadvantaged and are often neglected and excluded from legitimate access to resources, as I said, and that would have aided in them, you know, and these resources would have helped them to, to, to generate social capital. Um, and, and sometimes they would see, you know, they, they would see somebody from their community who has access to education and has the nine safety subjects and still can't get a job. And they're just like, what, you know, and this, this, this ropes in the unemployment issue and the under underemployment issue as well, because they will see that this person has, okay, they, they went to the, they went to the legitimate route and still they, they're trying or struggling to survive. So what's the sense? What, why does it make sense for me to even attempt it anyway? Um, but you know, studies, um, you know, focus on environment, um, um, the environment that, you know, inmates are socialized in and uh, its implications for their criminal paths. Um, inmates who grew up in deprived settings um, and, and grew up in environments characterized by family violence or drug and alcohol abuse, Mm-hmm. Um, early separation from their family or their parents, um, mm-hmm. their household, um, um, and they they grew up in communities with criminal gangs. They're more likely to to commit a crime um, and showed higher levels of um, recidivism. So. I mean, in some ways, these people are victims of society themselves, right? Yes, exactly. They they have been refused services and Mm -hmm. access to things that the average person should have access to. um, Mm -hmm. And in turn, they've turned to crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And that's the thing. A lot of people, when they think of poor people, they think that they, 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 their minds tell them, hmm, what, what did this person do wrong? And how did they manage their money wrong to end up in this situation? And these people literally did nothing. They were just born into a poor family. That's what they did wrong. They were born into a poor family. So, so they're a product of the society and we've neglected them. You know, they, they, you know, they weren't offered resources. And so, you know, these are issues that, that we really need to, we need to focus on education um, and, and, and um, access to resources and access to proper education in Jamaica. Um, and that should be included in the discourse when we talk about um, combating crime. I'm glad that you just touch on education. What other reforms, in your well-informed opinion, um, would you suggest um, as a plan to combat crime in Jamaica? Right. So, yeah, crime prevention um, and um, control is a continuous process. And the existing policies are obviously, you know, failing to adequately respond um, to the crime and violence issues that we're having. So whatever um, policies and initiatives we would have tabled probably 10 years ago, they're not working the way we wanted to. I think we're focusing more on tackling crime after it has already happened. Like, you know, it, it, it's already taken place, it's done and we're trying to intercept it. So most of our efforts are focused on crime suppression and crime control, and we're neglecting the need for more crime prevention policies. Um, Crime prevention focuses on preventing future occurrence of crime, and it takes into account the unjust society that we live in. Um, So preventing or lowering the crime rate would involve socioeconomic change. And this method is, uh, you know, it's corrective and will produce opportunities for, opportunities, sorry, for people um, who are at risk of offending. Um, for people in poverty-stricken areas, it would improve the rate of social mobility and it would encourage social integration and influence proper housing systems and access to education and, you know, all all these other social issues that we have, and it would address these things. So while um, crime control now, on the other hand, would focus more on, or this the approach focuses more on policing, well, well, not me saying policing instead of policing. Um, Yeah, so crime control, on the other hand, this approach focuses, you know, more on um, policing solutions, and this method understands that criminality is inevitable, and so the urgency is on reducing the existent criminal activities and criminal actors, and this is where we utilize the law enforcement uh, measures. Um, who would intercept the criminal activity to carry out major investigations to stop it in its tracks um, or even attempt to minimize the, minimize the harm that it would have caused. Um, but this is also where we ensure um, efficient arrest and um, you know, conviction of 
offenders, this is important work because it, it shouldn't, uh, you know, it shouldn't stand alone whenever we, we engage in discourse about um, combating our crime problem. Um, crime control is important, but it should not be a standalone um, mechanism. And we should also include um, crime prevention methods and utilize both at the same time. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the necessity for not just crime control, but crime prevention. I actually had a look at the ministry's website and I saw that they had a few social programs to to address crime prevention. Um, but what and I'm not sure if you can and you can speak to this, but as somebody who studies development, a lot of that includes programming. And I'm just wondering to what extent are these programs being monitored and evaluated to see how are they working, whether or not they're working, what adjustments need to be made? Because I think um, implementing pro- implementing social programs is amazing. It's good and it works, but only if it's done well, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you know, and as I said, that the hybrid approach to tackling crime is is the most effective um, route um, at this juncture. Focusing on social intervention and these programs that you you made mention of in tandem with crime control methods. So Ashira Jackson did some work on um, gang risk factors among urban Jamaicans and. She, you know, came up came up with some social prevention methods um, that could help uh, in pacifying violent communities. Um, some of which are like the provision of community centers, you know, um, after school programs, family interventions, and crisis intervention services to deal with high rates of conflict and violence in the garrison communities. Um, providing employment opportunities and educational skills training to marginalized youth in the inner city in the, in the inner city communities, um, social cognitive therapy and um, counseling targeting negative um, behaviors like fearlessness and rebelliousness. Um, it would be important. It would be vital in addressing underlying personal traits that exacerbate the likelihood of gang involvement. Um, so there are, I mean, in Jamaica now, we have some initiatives, um, whether governmental or non-governmental, that engages in meaningful work in volatile and vulnerable communities, um, like CSJP, Violence Prevention um, Alliance, um, PMI Peace Management Initiative, which has um, measurable success in reducing gang violence in communities and has worked to diffuse hostile situations that may generate um, gang rivalry. Um, UNICEF, Multicare Youth Foundation, which I'm um, also a part of, and there's Women's Research Outreach Center, and you know we have MOJ's Restorative Justice Program, um, Victim Services Division, who, that is also attached to the Ministry of Justice. Um, so the initiatives are, are, you know, they exist and they're working um, in this area. Um, I know COVID would obviously pose a challenge for many of these outreach programs that were mm-hmm. mobilized. And um, either way, we still have to be deliberate about the creation of more social intervention programs. 
um, and we still have to deliver, be deliberate um, in ensuring that they work and they're effective and they target at-risk youths and volatile communities. Um, we also have to strengthen the correctional system. Um, the Department of Correctional Services is severely underfunded. In 2018, I participated in the Inter-American Development Bank's inmate study, um, which would have produced the findings for the Regional Comparative Report Survey of Individuals Deprived of Liberty, um, focusing on the correctional system in the Bahamas, uh, Barbados, Guyana, Jamaica, Suriname, and Trinidad and Tobago. And the study covered the period 2016 through to 2019. Um, mm. We spent weeks visiting the correctional institutions and meeting with violent and violent offenders, offenders on remand. Um, but what the report findings um, would have shown from our work in these prisons is that incarceration in the Caribbean is not as effective as we think it is, um, nor efficient in producing greater safety or just outcomes. Um, and we also have overcrowded prisons, uh, with many inmates having either been victimized or witnessed others being victimized. Uh, but in order to reduce uh, the prison population, uh, we have to establish um, programs that divert people who have committed non-serious offenses or non-violent offenses um, or who do not necessarily pose a direct threat or a threat to the, the public. Um, and when I, when I speak about these people that I, that the inmates that I'm, I'm thinking about um, are, are inmates that would have committed drug offenses um, and they account for a notable um, proportion of offenders. Um, people convicted of, of crimes related to drug use should be diverted to treatment. Um, yeah. The report also looks at decreasing the use of pretrial detention to ensure that the prison is reserved for people who pose an imminent risk to public safety, um, who are persistent offenders and who commit um, serious crimes and have a career, like a, their criminal careers, um, are, are career criminals. Right. There's also there's also a need to 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 um, focus on rehabilitation and re reintegration programs. Yeah. Um, Jamaica's recidivism rate is a little over forty percent, um, and we have the highest proportion of inmates who um, accessed post-release services out of the six countries that were included in the study. But our recidivism rate is still high, right? Um, um, inmates should be able to access vocational training and employment preparation, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, substance use disorder treatment while inca incarcerated. And um, following release, um, reentry support programs should allow access to employment housing, um, drug use treatment, mental health services, reintegration into the educational system. Um, we have to enhance our pre and post release services and encourage employers to hire formerly incarcerated individuals. Um, 
it the, the report also recommended the, the ban the box policies, which would force employers to do away with the section on the job applications that queries the applicant's criminal history. I mean, obviously, if someone is applying for a security position or a job at MOCA, they're expected to have a clean criminal record. But I don't think a fast food restaurant, for example, should turn ex-offenders um, away yeah. uh, or, or, or have access to their criminal records through that application process. People mm-hmm. need to be able to access jobs upon release. And we need to work to change public attitudes and the assumptions that prisoners um, or the assumptions about prisoners and reduce um, the level of stigma attached to them. Um, so, the, the, I mean, the factors that led to initial incarceration are also the same factors related to recidivism, which is poverty, um, low educational attainment, drug use, family violence, um, residing in a poor community um, yeah. with criminal gangs. And I've heard people make comments like, you know, our criminals, our, our prisons, sorry, are so poor and inhumane that once they're released, inmates, you know, should be um, dissuaded from wanting to return. But I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. Inmates are returning to the same communities and living conditions that would have caused their incarceration in the first place. And we're back at square one. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I know that UK's um, uh, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office donated um, recently donate, donated some funds um, to improve DCS's, um, which is Department of Correctional Services, their capacity to reduce recidivism through reintegration programs. So that's that's good, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you brought up the different the different. Um, categories of criminals, so violent offenders and non-violent offenders in relation Mm -hmm. to what the prison system looks like, because I can only imagine, like, let's say you're, you know, just a poor youth from a poor community, Mm -hmm. police pick you up on a, you know, on a state of emergency or whatever, maybe you have a one or two spliff. No, you're Mm -hmm. in a prison with, like, actual violent offenders, Mm -hmm. and, like, depending on how long you're here, you're forced to behave a certain type of way to keep Mm -hmm. yourself safe in this environment. I know you're out of prison, and like you said, these even jobs at fast food restaurants are asking about this. You can't get a job at a fast food restaurant. Maybe yeah. you were a decent person before this, but no, you have this prison attitude and you can't get a job. So all of that is forcing you to then become a violent offender in a situation yeah. where you weren't a violent offender. You were just a youth on the street who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and a spliff yeah. on him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's it. You know, so there's a lot of work that we need to get done. And as I said, I definitely promote a hybrid system. Um, I understand that the force, you know, the, the, the police force is trying to intercept criminal activities and they're trying to do work and trying to, you know, um, um, enhance their technological um, capacity to, 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 to intercept crime. But we, we can't just focus on that. We have to look into what causes crime and try to to shift gears and try to to people it's just like there's a lot to think about um when we think about jamaica's crime system and i know i covered the poverty um levels but it's it's very personal to me because if i didn't have a mother who 
get up and go beg the school to and I, I mentioned this to Paige, you know, yesterday that, you know, my mom literally went and she she advocated for me and I I have been exposed to domestic violence and I was exposed to shootings that happened, you know, in front of me. And so I was a child who would have been exposed to violence. And I can't imagine how children who live in these communities who see these things on a daily basis, how they feel and how it has impacted their ability to perform in schools. And the schools just write them off. That's it. And that's why I say we need to change the way we, we, we approach education and how you know, the access that people have to education and proper education. You know, people, ch ch children just don't go to school to just learn and to sit on and stare in teacher face. There should be, you know, different um, areas that focus on the psychological aspect and take into consideration the child's social situation. No, yeah, I, I completely agree um, with everything you've said and the the suggestion of a hybrid approach to, to crime in Jamaica. I think that really is the way to go. Um, thank you so much for your time and the meaningful work that you, you conduct as it relates to crime. Thank you, Paige, uh, for having me. I mean, this was very, this was very um, good. It was good. I really love what Checkmate is doing and Tenement Yard. Um, I really, really, really think it's meaningful work that you guys are doing. Um, I listened to all the episodes so far and I'll continue to support the work that you're covering um, on different social issues and, you know, storytelling things that you're, I, I really love it. Um, so continue to, to, to engage in this kind of work, continue to do what you're doing. Big up yourself, baby. Every time. <laughs> Thank you. And no, yes, big up, Davy. Um, this has been another episode of the Checkmate political podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media and share the podcast with a friend. Babylon will hear my voice, cause we're there so for truth and right.